And welcome back to the Death with Dignity podcast. My name is Andrew Flack, and I'll be your host. As a licensed clinical social worker with the University of California, San Diego, Monica Lingle has significant responsibilities supporting patients and their families as they navigate their way through the medical maze that comes with the cancer experience. Today, She joins us to share more details about her role and how the End of Life Option Act is so instrumental in her field. We thank you for listening, we thank you for your time, and we hope you enjoy the episode. Welcome everybody. We are here today uh, recording for the Death with Dignity podcast. We're here with Monica Lingle, who is an LCSW for Moore's Cancer Center located and with UCSD or University of California, San Diego. We're here today to talk a little bit about the social emotional piece connected with death with dignity or aid in dying, as it's sometimes referred to. Uh, It is also called the End of Life Option Act, which was the bill that was passed in 2015 and signed into law. But Monica, thank you for joining us and making the trek here to Oceanside. Tell us a little bit about yourself and just uh, your role and what you do and how you got involved in this field. Okay, well, thank you so much for asking me to to talk to you today. I, um, I love talking with people. That's part of why I'm a social worker. And I'm happy to talk about um, aid and dying or the end of life option act with you. Um, I've been a social worker since 1992 and have always worked in healthcare or in the medical setting. And uh, when the cancer center first, when the law first passed and the cancer center or UCSD was involved, um, there was a social worker who was doing all of our, um, meeting with all of our folks who were interested in aid and dying. And the way the oncology group ended up getting involved was that that social worker was um, preparing to retire. And so came up with what, how are we going to meet this need? And um, as we looked at where most of the patients, um, where most of those patients' referrals were coming from was from oncology patients. And so um, the social worker who'd been involved um, met with the social workers at Moore's and asked if we thought it was something that we would be interested in. And we absolutely... Um, all of us were really supportive of taking this on as as part of our work with our patients and families. Um, and so um, each, and, and tell me if I'm answering your question. No, this Stop is me. great. Okay. Yeah, no, and the, you, we tell everyone who's listening and out there, we're, we're all new to this whole experience. Okay. So uh, just, we, we appreciate the conversation and the opportunity to talk and yeah, feel free to go with the flow okay. and just share maybe uh, your role, um, obviously, within Moore's and such. And we obviously have a couple guiding questions as well. But yeah, this is great. Um, okay. okay. And, it, and LCSW, tell us what that stands for and what that gives you 
the ability to do, I suppose, or, or, or your role, how, how uh, you support others in that role. Okay. So LCSW stands for Licensed Clinical Social Worker. And so um, in Calif- California, that's the licensing to be a social worker. So we all have a graduate education and master's in social work. And then to become licensed, we need um, about a little more than two years of supervised practice. And then there's a licensing exam that um, back when I took the exam was an oral exam and a written exam. And having an LCSW allows um, a social worker to do private practice. It allows different, um, like I said, my background is in healthcare. A lot of hospitals or health centers don't require the license to work there, but it's, um, it's pretty well expected if you have your MSW that you'll pursue licensing. And so there are some jobs that require a license and, and, um, Morse cancer center does require our our social workers to be licensed. Sure. Um, and MSW that is that a master's of social social work. work. Okay. Mm -hmm. And then the LCSW is kind of that extra step, which enables or gives you that extra, I guess, pedigree in a way. Yeah. 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 And then as a school teacher, Mm -hmm. we work, we have LCSWs at our school, uh, who work with students and support the community there. What drew you to the health field versus something like education or even a private practice? So I attribute that going back to um, when I was in college, one of my sociology classes, um, it was actually uh, sociology of mental illness. And in one of the classes, he talked about unresolved grief not necessarily as a mental illness, but he talked about unresolved grief. And I found myself um, really moved by that. Um, I experienced some losses as a senior in high school. I've had, during separate events, two different uh, classmates die. And so I found I was really um, just struck by the issue, by the concept of unresolved grief and how much um, that, um, related to my own experiences. And so I found myself becoming really interested in, in bereavement and grief. And, um, this was back in 1986 and well, it's 88, maybe by then. And, um, the AIDS epidemic was huge. And so, um, I ended up being hired as a student educator about HIV, um, and AIDS prevention and then, and then that sort of led into healthcare. And so then when I was going to graduate school and had to pick sort of an internship track, um, healthcare, it, well, the bereavement interest led me to working in a hospice setting. And oh, then, interesting. yeah. And so then from, as a bereavement counselor was, was my first internship. And then after that, um, my next internship was actually at Rady Children's in the ICU and I fell in love with being in the hospital. Sure. In that setting, um, so I've um, since that time, most of my I've either been in an, an ICU ER setting or um, in a hospice setting, and I've felt like over time the working in the cancer center, um, having that experience of both inpatient acute care and outpatient hospice, um, 
more palliative care, end of life care. Um, oncology really encompasses both or is, is the trajectory. And I, um, feel like part of my skill set is I'm able to go from, um, I can tolerate the balance of pursuing treatment and the hope that people will get better. I can balance that hope with the knowledge that that's not, people don't always get better. And I can kind of, my goal is to stay with our patients wherever they are on that journey. Sure. Stay with them emotionally and be able to kind of tolerate that. Um, the, what it called like the tolerate that tension of sure. balancing those things. Absolutely. I think that's one of, through my own experience, the hardest pieces is finding that realism and accepting where you might be going with the trajectory or the prognosis. Mm-hmm. And there's, for myself, I've experienced a lot of different emotional states, um, denial. It seems like almost the, um, I guess, the standard stages of grief, if, if you will. Mm-hmm. And um, eventually, you, at least for me, I feel like I am at a point where I've accepted my prognosis and where I'm heading, which is why the topic with death with dignity has become so uh, important in a sense and just from hearing you talk a little bit, it sounds like you're the perfect person to be in that role. And with your experiences, you mentioned hospice and having that interest and desire to work with people in the bereavement setting. Mm-hmm. Um, so that that's huge for, I'm sure, your patients and such. And tell us a little bit about your work with patients, specifically with aid and dying, um, how how you support them in the process and maybe some of that emotional, I guess, roller coaster that others mm-hmm. may go through, what that might look like. So, um, as I think you know, the you know, Cancer Center, our teams are determined by, um, oh, we call them disease teams. So each social worker, so that, for example, there's a breast team social worker, there's um, a, a lung team social worker, and I am the GI team social worker. So, each social worker um, took on as as part of our being part of our team is that if a patient has an, uh, questions or wants to talk about aid and dying, um, it made sense that the social worker who was part of their care team would be the one to talk to them about that. That was kind of how that decision sure. was made. Um, since I already I know those doctors, I know sort of hopefully know enough about how all of our different, all of the different, um, cancer diagnosis that our, our patients are, are experiencing. Um, so my role, if someone has a, has questions or wants to talk about in dying is to make contact with that person. And, um, this probably won't surprise you. Every doctor has a little bit different comfort level in talking about it. So some of our doctors are great at explaining the whole process. They tell their patients about it. Um, they don't necessarily um, have a lot of que- patients may not have a lot of questions for me about the logistics of the process. Some people have, you know, they kind of know about it, but they don't know very much about it. And they, I kind of start from the beginning, explain the process to them. Um, I've thought a lot about um, your, 
you had prepared me one of the questions is what are what are people's emotional responses to it and my experience really consistently has been and other social workers have shared this with me as well a lot of times by the time someone has expressed an interest in aid and dying to their doctor they've kind of already decided that it's something they want to pursue sure um and so i haven't seen people have a lot of ups and downs and what what i generally hear from people is a sense of relief um i actually just talked to a woman today who said she felt like a huge weight had been lifted in talking to her doctor about it and then talking with me about it and being reassured yes we can have that this is an option for you and we can make that happen um so a lot of people have already kind of gone through the emotional roller coaster of is this something that i'm interested in um and so what i have found more often is families their their partners or their family member wants to sort of process that a little bit more um most of the folks that i've talked to are really once they're talking to me about it, they've made that decision. Yeah. Not necessarily that they're going to take the medication, but that they want to have that option. Sure. That makes sense. And tell us about how that experience is with the family, because for my experience as well, I had had a conversation with my doctor, my oncologist, Dr. Miller, and he was able to coordinate bringing my parents in to talk with him as well. And that was very, very helpful for them and my family as a whole. So how do you make yourself available? I I suppose to those other family members, is that a role that you I'm sure embrace and, and help um, advocate or support them in in any ways? Absolutely. As, as much or as little as, as folks want. Um, it's sort of evolved with COVID um, and haven't been seeing it's we're opening up a little bit more now, but um, in the past I've met with patients and their families in the clinic um, or made appointments with them outside of their clinic visit to sit and talk. Um, in the last year and a half, most of my conversations with folks have been over the phone, which um, can actually still feel pretty intimate. Sure. Um, so um, I think for family members, there's more of that sort of acceptance um, continuum that they see the person that they love suffering or dealing with, sometimes it's extraordinary pain, um, sometimes it's extraordinary fear of pain or of losing um losing their sense of self or dignity and um, and no one wants the person they love to die ever. And I think when um, one of our doctors has described it as taking the aid and dying medications isn't about making a choice to die. It's about making a choice about how you're going to die. And so as sad as many family members are, husbands or wives are about it, if they get to that, if they get to the place of feeling like, I know my person's not choosing to leave me, it's not about that. It's about how can I best support them 
at their end of life. Um, and many folks get, I mean, they get to a point where they're never happy that, you know, folks are never, I mean, acceptance is such a weird word. I mean, they may, it doesn't mean you're happy about it or glad about it, but, um, a lot of people end up feeling that they, um, it's one of their like final, um, loving things they can do for their, their person is to support them at the very end of their life. Absolutely. I think in a lot of cases, the greatest gift that we can give to somebody in that situation is to end that suffering and provide that, that way out in a dignified and humane manner. That's Mm -hmm. at least what I'm starting to feel and learn more as we investigate this whole idea. So as you mentioned, patients generally seem like they are more at that level of acceptance and um, almost wanting to have that option. And their families might be more at a stage of wanting to know more about it. And I thought you did a good job explaining what that process might look like for them. I wonder as well, have you worked with families or people who have a the opposite, um, I guess, viewpoint of aid and dying and disagree with the idea of it or the philosophy of it. And with that, I wonder too what your thoughts are as to why that might be or why this whole subject is kind of a taboo subject Mm -hmm. in, I think, the medical community and society in general. I've definitely met, um, whether it's coworkers um, or and, and are some patients' families who are not supportive of the idea, and some of the some of how, some of what that can look like is um, a husband or wife who controls the conversations. For example, if I call, and, and this has happened to my uh, social work colleagues as well, um, you may reach out and call, and um, and and sometimes folks don't feel well, so they're not the one to answer the phone. And, you know, husband or wife will tell you straight up, I'm not happy about this. You know, I'm not happy that they're asking about this. And they'll say, yes, yes, yes. I'm going to tell them that you called. And they happen to forget. Yeah. You never hear back. And Mm -hmm. so then, you know, that can sometimes, um, be a little worrisome, you know, are they, are they getting the message that I, you know, they asked for this. I want to make sure they feel heard and that they have the information. Um, but I have seen that, um, evolve over time with a husband who was pretty protective of the, of any of us having this conversation with his wife. Um, and over time that evolved. And I think one of the things we, um, feel really strongly about is we want to make sure, um, that, whether or not someone is planning to or wants to use the end-of-life medications, that their symptoms are really well-managed. Um, I um, have a really hard time with our patients being uncomfortable or in pain. I think probably because I've worked in hospice, I know how well hospice does at um, mitigating that. And so I'm a huge proponent of hospice care. And um, I try to really reassure our families that um, first of all, a lot of folks don't know anything about hospice care. And so we try to give them education about what hospice can provide. And, um, 
when we do have a patient who's ready to stop their cancer-directed treatment and um, and is interested in aid in dying, one of the things that we um, almost insist upon is that they are followed by hospice at home when they plan to take the medications. And there's some sort of really nitty-gritty details about why, but part of it is so that before they ever take the medication, that their symptoms are well-managed. Um And for a lot of folks, and I try to reassure families this, lots of people will go through the whole process of obtaining the prescription and then never use it. It's just that sense of relief and safety knowing that it's there in the event that their um, quality of life is so poor or their pain is so poorly managed that they know they have that um, as an option. I think for a lot of folks when hospice is involved, they don't get to that point. They are really comfortable. Um, but, and so I, see, I think for some spouses and family members, that is reassuring that we're not put, you know, we're not trying to push aid and dying. We're just giving folks an extra layer of support, an extra option. Absolutely. And from your experience working in hospice centers or with them, closely with them, how are they involved in the process? And from my understanding, there are some hospice centers who might not be supportive of the idea of aid in dying. And I wondered, again, if you have experience there or if you have an idea as to why that they might have that philosophy. Um, I have had experiences with that. Um, in San Diego, there are um, a few hospices that in what we would call... Um, fully participate in aid and dying, meaning that um, their physicians will act as its attending physician and write the prescription. They will provide the consulting physician um, to confirm the diagnosis and prognosis. They'll, they'll do the whole process with the patient. That's what we consider fully participating. And they do that without... Um, additional charges for patients and without referring them to an outside private physician. Okay. That's nice. Yeah. Um, there are hospices who say they support the process or support are supportive. Um, but they, um, if a patient asks about it, they'll refer them to a private physician who can charge upwards of 10 or $15,000 on top of then the cost of the medications. And um, in our thought process, that's not being, that's not being supportive um, or not. It's not that they're not being supportive, but they're not fully participating. Sure. Sure. Um, some hospices will um, are supportive in that they'll allow their staff to be present at the time the patient ingests the medications. Some hospices aren't, don't do that and their staff won't do that. Sure. Um my sense of why it's tab I think there are a lot of different reasons, but I think um, for some people there is the misconception that um, physician aid in dying or medical aid in dying is suicide. Um, that's not our perspective in the um, in our team that helps patients. And that goes back to, it's not about making a choice to die. It's making a choice about how you're going to die. Sure. Um, And I would liken that to 
We want people to have a choice about, are, are you at home? Are you in the hospital? Do you want, if, you, if your heart stops, do you want CPR? I mean, to me, those are choices that people can make about the end of their life, as is taking the aid and dying medication. Um, but my um, value system and framework is that people have a right to privacy and autonomy. Very, to me, it's very similar to um, whether you're pro-choice about reproductive freedom. I see it as being very similar. And so um, that's my own personally. That's why sure. I'm supportive of it. Um, but I think the taboo goes back to considering it suicide. Some people think it's playing God. Um, and to talk, touch base on the suicide subject... Mm -hmm. The law was passed and written so that, for example, on the death certificate, it wouldn't say something like died by suicide. It, it does would, not. It should not say that. That's right. not right. Right. So this, and I, for, from what I've read and kind of understand that this is a big piece as to why I think there might be some controversy is, as mm -hmm. you mentioned, some people might consider it suicide. Do you think that is a component in the medical community itself as to why some others might not be supportive or maybe it goes back even for doctors and like the Hippocratic Oath and, or something like that and promising to do no harm. Could that also be a factor just from your own a Absolutely. Experience? I think that's probably part of it. Sure. Um, and I think it's, and we can have all kinds of philosophical conversations of what means doing harm sure um chemotherapy radiation immunotherapy can make people really really sick absolutely um so with the intention again and when you talk about bioethics and more you have to look at what's the intention um and your intention when you're giving someone chemotherapy is not to make them really really sick but that's side effect certainly um so um and you could argue that by not providing this choice let's say a patient is suffering at the end of their life and if a doctor were not to agree to give this to a patient are they doing harm to that patient when we know that inevitable outcome is death right so i think certainly there there's a you know a side to every story and absolutely each side of the coin and all that and i can see why it is such a sensitive subject. And not only yeah. that, but we're talking about really the most deep and profound experience that we have as a species, the end of life. Right. I mean, this is something we will all experience. But at the same time, even though it's something we do have in common with each other, it's still so very taboo, as we mentioned earlier, right. to discuss it. When the bill, this is something I wanted to circle back to, when it was first introduced and first coming about in the medical community, uh, we did a little recording earlier, and we know that this was years in the making, decades in the making, getting this bill around. When did you first hear about it or uh, hear rumblings about it, I guess, in California as a professional, and how did that develop over the years, just from your own personal uh, perspective? Gosh, I'm not, it's hard to even think back about when that first, sure, when I first started yeah. thinking about it. Um, 
And there were multiple attempts throughout even the 90s and early 2000s with legislation. And here in California, it seemed like the big tipping point was a woman named Brittany Maynard. Mm -hmm. She um, ended up moving to Oregon from California, her home state, so that she could take advantage of the death with dignity rate and dying law there. And the year after that is when California really... And I think Brittany and her husband really... um brought this into the mainstream consciousness with yes. cover people magazine. And, um, how was that experience for you at that time in California? And just what was the, were there rumblings at UCSD or discussions between you and other social workers? I'm not sure that we really, um, I think we probably thought about it and hoped that that would be an, an option for our patients. I think my response to, Brittany made her, was how sad it was that she had to leave her home in order to get that care. Um, I think um, I've um, had been asked a a couple of times to give talks to social work graduate students about death and dying. And one of the questions that would frequently come up is, what do you think about euthanasia? And I always say, well, it's illegal. We don't, and, and that's, also something that people, I think, need to understand about aid and dying, it, this requires that a patient be fully aware that they're participating. Um, we're not, um, it's not a decision for someone else to make for them or do to them. It's, um, and I think that is also part of the taboo about it is, are we taking advantage of, you know, are we trying to maybe people, off somebody? Right, who, right. And that's not... That's not what it's about. And yeah, that's, and that's a huge point and case piece to hold on to is exactly that. This is the patient ultimately making that decision for themselves. Yes, and I could see how uh, people might, you know, wonder what the process is like and what's behind it, and if exactly that, if it's something like the doctor or the family making that decision, mm-hmm. which is not the case. Right, and there are some. Um, there's quite a bit of safety net. Um, built into the law to make sure that it's the patient's decision and not anyone else's and that they're not, um, feeling coerced. Sure. Absolutely. It is, it's a process. And, uh, I think it's a good thing that there are those safeguards as you mentioned. And then as we kind of move forward with, uh, aid and dying and this concept do you feel from when it was passed in 2015 to now and hopefully moving forward, do you feel there's been a change or less of a stigma or maybe it's more accepting to talk about whether it's in the medical community or um, just our society in general? Have you noticed a change or do you think that's something that's still developing as as more states and even legislation is passed throughout the country? I think it's still developing, but I will say... Um in my experience at our healthcare center, um, initially there were only a couple of doctors who felt comfortable writing the prescription. Um, and that has, we've definitely seen, um, more oncologists becoming comfortable and participating, meaning they'll either write the prescription or they'll act as a consulting physician and feeling much more comfortable, um, helping their patients access that information. I think, um, you know, initially there may have, we've come upon situations where it looks like a patient had asked their doctor about it 
and it never got nothing ever came of that. They weren't referred to us that never went anywhere. I think we're seeing less of that. Um, I think physicians are one of the things I hear that um, I always try to correct this misinformation is sometimes if a patient brings it up to someone in the hospital or someone on another team, they're told, oh, you know what, that takes forever. It's really complicated. It's there's so many steps involved. I don't think you want you don't want to fool with that. Right. Um, and the reality is it's not that complicated. I mean, there are those safeguards, but it's a very straightforward process. Absolutely. Um, I would agree with that. And I met with one family who'd been told, um, the patient had been told, this is really complicated. There's so many steps to it. It would be really hard for you to work through all that. And her, and the patient was disappointed saying, you know, I really wanted to have this option available. And I was trying to reassure her that we can help you with those steps and it's not really that complicated. And her daughter pointed out, you know, mom, the other options that they're offering you are like this huge surgery, chemo, radiation, you know, all these yeah. different things. Like, that's complicated. Sure. This is, yeah. this is pretty straightforward. Like, Absolutely. let's get you connected with the hospice and help you with these, you know, these visits to do this. So it's really, that's sort of a misinformation that I think is changing slowly that it's, it's not a tremendously burdensome, burdensome process for people to go through. Um, and like I said, I'm seeing more physicians that are comfortable either um, talking with their patients about it or um, actually writing the prescription. Absolutely. Well, that's good. And I think that there probably is still a little ways to go. Just still a lot of states who um, don't have any legislation in the works or anything like that. But Mm -hmm. uh, it seems like when, especially specifically California, starts to pass some legislation and get the ball rolling on things, it seems like other states eventually kind of get behind that too. So I feel like this state in particular is generally a leader in some of these more, I guess, taboo subjects. Mm -hmm. But um, one other question I had, you mentioned that you work with other social workers who are on the different teams that support patients with other diseases and such. And I can imagine you all work pretty collaboratively together um, on this topic or other we topics? Do. Yeah, both. Okay, um, good. We have a, um, a pretty tight uh, social work team at Moore's that, um, and team is sort of um, used loosely because we're on our disease teams, but as a sure. discipline, as a profession, um, many of us actually have known each other for years, have worked together in other places, and then ended up working together at, the, at UCSD. Um, and so we... Um, do a lot of consultation with one another in general. And then um, those of us that, that work in aid and dying meet with our medical director of the aid and dying program monthly um, and talk about how things are going and um, consultation, any questions or concerns. Sure, um, sure. And to make sure that we're and is that is that as a whole unit or just individually or like kind of as as a said, group as a group as okay a group. cool and then yeah. I imagine there is a lot of data collected on patients whether or not they use the medication yes. that's all tracked and regulated that's all tracked and then um, and we present that information every month to the um, medical ethics team okay 
And just from your own personal experience, have you been with patients before who have used this medication? Have you been involved in that process? Or is that something that you haven't had the opportunity to to do yet, I, I suppose? Um, I did have the opportunity, was asked by one of our patients to be there when she took her medication. And that was um, a huge privilege for me. Um, having worked in hospice, I've been with people when they've died. Um, and... Um, I felt really privileged to be with her and her family. Um, and it was incredibly peaceful. Um, I think as we like the sense of relief that she felt that she, um, had reached a point where she was done, um, trying to live with the symptoms she'd been experiencing for a long time. Her husband was there. Her stepdaughter was there. Um, and it was very, very peaceful. Good. Yeah. It seems like that's the word a lot of people who we've talked with, uh, they use is peaceful. And that's um, reassuring and comforting as a, as a person who might have to use that option. Yeah. Um, the, um, the prescription contains a very large amount of morphine. And um, this woman expressed to me and then... Um, and I've heard this from other people that she actually said, like, "Oh, really good." Like, <laughs> yeah, you know, and she sure. she fell asleep fairly quickly. Sure, but in those few minutes before she fell asleep, um, she was feeling she was good. Feeling good. Good, which was thank God. Yeah, exactly. I mean, with some of the suffering from the disease, her or other people in this situation, it can be yeah, it can be to the point where you just can't go on and yeah. having that option I think is very very important. Yeah. Is there anything else that you'd like to share or any other you know questions or thoughts or experiences that you'd like to share about the topic of death with dignity? Um I'm more wondering and you can cut this out if you want. I'm more <laughs> wondering sort of what it's been like for you to sure. talk to people about it. Yeah, sure. Um, um it- um, when we first talked about you doing this podcast, you sent it almost was sort of academic and detached a little bit. And I'm just wondering what it's been like for you to hear what people think and feel about it. Yeah, that's a good question. And I try to be honest. And that's one of the things I've tried to be is honest with my disease and this whole experience from the start. Um, the topic is as we mentioned, pretty heavy, probably one of the most heavy discussions you can really have with people. And for me, it's been certainly cathartic is a word that I've used. Uh, I think it's been healing in a way, in a way it's been more reassuring for my prognosis because I am a candidate to use this drug. Uh, For me, I think as well a lot about my family and how... I hope this is something that they can benefit from down the line or well after I'm gone as well, knowing that I'm in a good place with my journey with cancer. Mm-hmm. Uh, the, the recordings have been certainly up and down. I mentioned that we did interview my mom as one of our first guests, and that was very, very difficult for me. Mm-hmm. Way more difficult than I would have ever really imagined. And I think... Based on the guests that we have, it's easier, you know, it it was easier talking with you 
as a professional, not, you know, a family, direct family member, obviously. But I think too, that it's very important. I've had these discussions with my family. We've, you know, we've been together, we've cried together. We've tried to process all this together. And naturally when you're with those people that you care about the most, it's generally a lot more difficult. I think there's a lot more emotions that go with it. And as you mentioned, yeah, initially this was more of like a, I think an academic project in a way. And as we're moving forward, I don't mind using my own experience to kind of help lead some of <clears throat> some of these conversations and discussions. But I think in the end, hopefully it's just, this is a, something that will be there for people, family, friends, other people in this situation. And hopefully it will be a positive thing to listen to or give some kind of hope or reassurance or relief. When you mentioned that about your patients or patient earlier, <clears throat> that was something that stuck with me because I remember when we got to the point in my prognosis where we learned that we would not be able to cure the disease. It sounds weird, but there was a massive sense of relief, kind of in a way knowing what my path was going to be with this disease mm-hmm. and knowing that there would also be a point where when I needed to, I guess, stop fighting, I would have an option that would help me kind of get to that next point or that next realm. So yes, it's an important, important topic, obviously, to discuss. And uh, I think people like you and myself and husband and my mom and these others who are being involved, it takes people like us taking that risk to remove that stigma and that taboo Mm -hmm. and uh, make this more accepted within the medical community and society as a whole. So in the end, there will be good that comes from this. And I think that's what I'm most grateful for. I think this is just part of that journey that I'm on and hopefully it'll be a good thing in the end. I'm sure it will be. I think it's a huge um, gift that you're creating, that you're um, making it something that's more, um, more information that's available, making it more personal. You're putting the face to it, that this is, or voice to it. Sure. Um, And so it's really brave of you to share your experience and to work on this. Thank you. Thank you. And obviously brave for you to come on and, uh, share your own experiences too, and I know that uh, moving forward, good things will develop. I'm looking forward to see how it plays out. Me too. Well, unless there's anything else you wanted to add or ask, I think we I had. Think this so. is a great, great, uh, a great piece and a great addition to add to the Death with Dignity podcast. I hope so. So again, I'm Andrew Flack, and we were here interviewing Monica Lingle, LCSW with Moore's. Thank you so much for your time and coming up. My privilege to be here. Thank you. Awesome. All right. We will talk to you people soon. Take care.